You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 296 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When Ulysses S. Grant's most trusted subordinate, William Tecumseh Sherman, learned that John Pemberton had agreed to surrender Vicksburg, Sherman declared, Glory hallelujah, the best 4th of July since 1776. The citizens of Vicksburg surely felt differently about the matter, as they had to set about rebuilding their personal lives, repair their homes, and patch up a town scarred by federal shells and bullets. Meanwhile, both Grant and Sherman were eager to press the Federals' advantage by immediately turning their attention to the other Confederate force nearby, the so-called Army of Relief that was led by Joseph E. Johnston. As we mentioned previously, Johnston had been under pressure for weeks to do something, anything, to help Pemberton, and he had finally left his encampment at Canton, north of Jackson, and started to move the Army of Relief toward Vicksburg. But even though he was finally moving, Johnston did so only slowly and cautiously as he approached the Big Black River and the Federals' exterior line. With Pemberton ready to surrender Vicksburg, Grant directed Sherman to get ready to take the Union troops who had been manning the exterior line and move out and attack Johnston. Sherman replied, Telegraph me the moment you have Vicksburg in possession, and I will secure all the crossings of Big Black River and move on Jackson or Canton, as you may advise. Twenty miles east of Vicksburg, on the far side of the Big Black, Johnston and the Confederates in the Army of Relief suspected that the new and ominous silence from the direction of the beleaguered city meant that time had finally run out for the defenders of Vicksburg. In the last communication from Vicksburg, Pemberton had told Johnston that the end was near and that he would endeavor to hold out for 15 more days. Now, although only 12 days had passed since Pemberton had penned that dire warning, Johnston was all but certain that the silence meant the defenders of Vicksburg had reached the limits of human endurance and had surrendered the city to the Federals. On July 5th, Johnston's fears were confirmed when he received news of Vicksburg's surrender. 
Correctly fearing that Grant would now turn on him, Johnston headed east. Morale within the Confederate ranks sank as the men trudged toward Jackson under a blazing sun and through choking dust. On the evening of July 7th, after two dismal days of marching, the rebels filed into the defenses located on the west side of the Mississippi State Capitol. The next day, the soldiers then worked alongside impressed slaves to extend the line of earthworks north and south so that the line was anchored on the Pearl River above and below Jackson. These preparations were completed not a moment too soon because reports came in telling of the approach of several federal columns. The federal force approaching Jackson was commanded by Sherman, and it consisted of about 46,000 men in 13 divisions from the 9th, 13th, and 15th Corps. In this operation, Sherman was leading roughly two-thirds of Grant's army. The Federals arrived in front of Jackson on July 10th. Not wishing to commit himself to another hopeless assault against Confederate earthworks, as had happened at Vicksburg on May 19th and 22nd, Sherman instead issued orders for his commanders to spread out left and right and then break out the shovels, picks, and axes and start to prepare trenches and battery positions. That meant the siege of Jackson had begun. Throughout July 11th, the Federals moved into position around the city and extended their lines to the Pearl River on both flanks. However, Sherman hadn't expected Johnston to dig in, so the Union guns didn't have enough ammunition on hand to properly, to properly bombard the rebel positions. That meant Sherman would have to bide his time until more shot and shell were brought up. On July 12th, though, a costly and unnecessary fight did flare up when Brigadier General Jacob Lawman didn't realize he was only supposed to move up closer to the enemy lines, and instead he attacked the strong Confederate position to his front and lost 465 men killed, wounded, and missing. Heavy skirmishing flared up at various other points along the lines, but there were no more assaults intended or otherwise. Instead, Sherman was content to bide his time, waiting for the artillery ammunition, and then he intended to open on Johnston with every gun he had and, in his words, quote, make the town too hot for him to hold. Joe Johnston would have agreed with Sherman's prediction that a full-scale Union artillery bombardment would make holding Jackson impossible. A barrage of shot and shell from three directions, north, west, and south, would hit every spot on the Confederate lines and reach every corner of the city. On July 15th, Johnston telegraphed Richmond, saying, quote, The enemy is evidently making a siege, which we cannot resist. One can imagine the reaction of Jefferson Davis and Secretary of War Seddon to this news, since they would have recognized it was an echo of Johnston's earlier defeatist messages when he had declared, I am too late, and I am too weak to save Vicksburg. 
Joe Johnston decided not to wait for the Yankees to open up their big bombardment of Jackson. Instead, he issued orders for his army to evacuate the Mississippi State Capitol. After dark, on July 16th, the rebel infantry and artillery filed out of their works as quietly as possible and crossed the Pearl. Once on the east side of the river, they fired the bridges. For the second time in eight weeks, Johnston had abandoned Jackson to the enemy. Sherman didn't attempt a pursuit because of the, quote, intense heat, dust, and fatigue of the men, end quote. Instead of trying to catch Johnston, the Federals set to work completing the destruction of Jackson as a military asset. They thought they'd neutralized the Mississippi State Capitol two months earlier, but obviously they'd been mistaken. So now Sherman was determined to do a better job the second time around. Union soldiers set about the work of destruction with a vengeance. Those shops, stores, hotels, factories, and warehouses that had escaped destruction in May were now burned, and the railroads that radiated from Jackson were wrecked beyond any hope of repair. The Federals kept busy until July 23rd. Sherman boasted to Grant that, quote, Jackson will no longer be a point of danger. In fact, much of the city was a smoldering ruin, and for years thereafter, the state capital was known as Chimneyville, since that was all the Federals left standing when they left. The little damage was done to residential neighborhoods, the complete destruction of commercial, manufacturing, and transportation facilities was another sign that the war was taking a new turn toward what is referred to as hard war, in which Union forces would not only seek to meet Confederate armies on battlefields, but would also aim to destroy the South's very ability to carry on the war. After leaving Jackson, Sherman's men were back in Vicksburg by July 25th. They had been in the field for nearly two weeks. For the remainder of the summer, Grant's army would enjoy some much-needed rest. With Joe Johnston driven off, and the Mississippi State Capitol neutralized, Sherman, in summing up the operation that drove away the rebels' army of relief and completed the work of destruction in Jackson, wrote, quote, It seems to me a fit supplement to the reconquest of the Mississippi River itself and makes that perfect which otherwise would have been imperfect. While the struggle for Vicksburg was taking place, an equally intense struggle was underway 100 miles downriver at Port Hudson, Louisiana. As y'all recall, earlier in this story arc, we talked about how Union General Nathaniel Banks and two divisions of the Army of the Gulf had marched into the town of Alexandria on the Red River after a whirlwind offensive through south-central Louisiana that sent Confederate Generals Kirby Smith and Richard Taylor packing. At Alexandria, Banks expected to link up with McPherson's Corps from Grant's Army. 
Banks thought McPherson was making his way down from Lake Providence to the Red River through a maze of smaller waterways west of the Mississippi River. Once McPherson arrived, Banks intended to move down the Red to the Mississippi and then overwhelm Port Hudson. After that, he'd proceed upriver and join Grant at Vicksburg. But instead, waiting for Banks in Alexandria was a flotilla of federal gunboats from Porter's Mississippi Squadron. Following the fight at Grand Gulf, Porter had steamed down the Mississippi and joined David Farragut at the mouth of the Red. He made his way up the Red to Alexandria and arrived just a few hours before Banks marched into town. Porter informed Banks that McPherson wouldn't be coming. Grant had crossed his army to the east bank of the Mississippi and was driving inland. Banks was stunned by this news and sent a stream of messages Grant's way, beseeching Grant to turn south and join him, or at least send a substantial force to reinforce him. But it was too late. Ulysses S. Grant and the Army of the Tennessee were on their way to Jackson and ultimately to Vicksburg. That meant Nathaniel Banks was on his own. Banks was in a quandary as to what to do next. He finally decided that if Grant wouldn't come to him, he'd go to Grant. With the help of Farragut's handful of warships, Porter's gunboats, and his own small flotilla of transports, he would move his force up the Mississippi to Grand Gulf and from there march inland to wherever Grant was located. Between May 14th and 17th, while Grant captured Jackson and then clashed with Pemberton at Champion Hill and the Big Black River, the Army of the Gulf evacuated Alexandria and marched in an easterly direction down the south side of the Red River. During this time, Banks started to have second thoughts about the wisdom of joining Grant up in Mississippi. In the end, Banks decided to move against Port Hudson instead. Fortunately for Banks, the muddled nature of the Confederate command situation in the West meant that Major General Franklin Gardner, the rebel commander at Port Hudson, received conflicting orders from Pemberton, from Joe Johnston, and from Richmond. The end result was that the garrison at Port Hudson was much reduced. When Grant crossed the Mississippi upriver from Port Hudson at the end of April, Gardner had about 11,500 men under his immediate command. But by the time Nathaniel Banks crossed the river three weeks later, Gardner had fewer than 5,800 men. When Banks crossed the Mississippi on May 22nd to put himself and his army on the same side of the river as Port Hudson, Gardner was taken completely by surprise. It never occurred to him that Banks, having once threatened Port Hudson from the south, then having bypassed the place by marching far to the west up to Alexandria, would then complete an enormous circle and approach from the north. Gardner had assumed any federal attack would come from the south, that is, from the direction of Baton Rouge, and so he hadn't bothered to fortify his defensive perimeter north of Port Hudson. 
But when he received word that the Yankees were pouring ashore to the north at Bayou Serra, Gardner put every available man to work felling trees and digging trenches and rifle pits in a desperate attempt to plug the mile-long hole in his lines. Banks approached Port Hudson late on May 22nd, about the time Grant's soldiers were falling back after their second unsuccessful attack on Vicksburg's defenses. Here at Port Hudson, Banks spent the next four days getting himself organized and closing in on the Confederate works. Gardner put those four days to good use, finishing the defenses to the north of Port Hudson, but still Gardner recognized his situation was hopeless. He remained defiant, though. With just under 5,800 men under his command, Gardner was vastly outnumbered by Banks' force, which at this stage numbered between 25,000 and 30,000 troops. But the Union's superiority in numbers was offset by Confederate earthworks and by the difficult, jumbled terrain which favored the defenders. The Federals were also handicapped at Port Hudson by the personal and professional failings of their commander and several of his principal subordinates. Perhaps here, four divisions was simply too much for the political general Banks to handle, but he was never able to get his division and brigade commanders to function as a team at Port Hudson. Banks wanted to avoid a lengthy siege, so on May 26, he held a council of war. He proposed that the army make an immediate assault all along the line and overwhelm the defenders by sheer force of numbers. A heated discussion followed, but the commanding general got his way. His final word on the subject was, quote, Port Hudson must be taken tomorrow. However, Banks inexplicably failed to coordinate the attacks. When, where, and how his division commanders chose to attack was left up to them. It was a recipe for disaster, and that is exactly what the Federal assaults turned into on May 27th. Colonel Irwin of Banks' staff summed up the attacks in five words, quote, The day was miserably lost. End quote. The uncoordinated Unionist assaults were all that the hard-pressed Confederate defenders could have hoped for. The Federals suffered almost 2,000 casualties, while the Rebels lost between 300 and 350 men. Banks' Army of the Gulf never fully recovered from the events of May 27th. Morale took a nosedive, and the rank-and-file's confidence in Banks and his generals was badly shaken. On the other side of the lines, as you might expect, Gardner's Confederates were greatly encouraged by their victory, and for a time even dared that the Yankees would give up and march away. Well, Banks may have been dismayed by the failure of the May 27th attacks, but he wasn't about to throw in the towel and march away. He put soldiers and contrabands to work digging trenches and artillery redoubts. By mid-June, over 130 guns of every size and type were banging away at the Confederate defenses. Farragut's ships on the Mississippi added another 50 heavy guns to the total. Shot and shell rained down on Port Hudson around the clock. Rebel work parties labored day and night to improve or repair the earthworks. 
The supply of fresh beef and salted pork eventually ran out, and the garrison turned to horses, mules, and even rats. Disease and malnourishment struck down hundreds of men. The Confederates hung on week after week with little hope of relief. Desertions increased as conditions deteriorated and as the situation became more desperate. Some nights, as many as two dozen rebel soldiers scrambled into federal lines. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Banks realized that Port Hudson was doomed, but he remained anxious to bring the matter to a close. Early predictions that Gardner would give up within a week or two had obviously proved far too optimistic. The Federals had plenty of food and ammunition, but they suffered from the heat and humidity and disease just as much as the Confederates. Three weeks into the siege, Banks lost patience and decided to try another assault. Banks met with his senior officers on the evening of June 13th, and this time actually drew up a detailed plan of attack. Unfortunately, the attack was scheduled to begin early on the 14th, only a few hours after the Council of War ended, so officers and men had little time to prepare. Like Banks' previous effort, the June 14th assault was a disaster. The Army of the Gulf suffered at least 1,800 casualties out of the 8,000 troops who took part in the assault. Confederate losses aren't known for certain, but likely amounted to less than one-fourth the federal total. The failed June 14th assault left Banks deeply depressed, 
and his officers and men demoralized. Discipline eroded, and alarming instances of insubordinate, even mutinous behavior took place. On the other hand, the Confederates, as might be expected, felt great satisfaction at having once again held off the Yankees. It was now obvious that the Federals weren't going to take Port Hudson by storm, so regular siege operations intensified under the direction of Captain John Palfrey, the Army of the Gulf's new chief engineer. The web of parallels and saps drew steadily closer to the Confederate lines. All of this activity kept the troops busy and gave them a sense of purpose, and morale gradually improved. For the next three weeks, the siege dragged on. Deserters trickled out of Port Hudson in ever larger numbers and reported the garrison was in desperate straits. It was clear that a Confederate surrender was only a matter of time, but once again Banks grew impatient. He decided that a third assault, if done properly, could succeed. The date for the next attack was tentatively scheduled for early July. However, everything changed on July 7th when the ram General Price nosed into the riverbank above Port Hudson. The ship carried the message that Grant had captured Vicksburg. The news spread like wildfire along the Federal lines and made its way inside the Confederate defenses. Gardner asked Banks if the news of Vicksburg's fall was true. Banks assured him it was. The rebel commander talked it over with his officers, who agreed that there was nothing to be gained here at Port Hudson by prolonging the suffering of the garrison and delaying the inevitable capitulation for a few more days. Gardner therefore surrendered Port Hudson on July 9th. Banks informed Grant, quote, The Mississippi is opened. On July 16, 1863, 12 days after the capture of Vicksburg and 7 days after the fall of Port Hudson, a momentous event occurred when the steamboat Imperial docked in New Orleans. Imperial had departed St. Louis on July 8th, and her arrival in New Orleans signaled that the struggle for the Mississippi River was over. To place the Vicksburg campaign and the struggle for control of the Mississippi in proper perspective, we have to try to understand the significance the Great River held in the minds of Americans back in days of yore. For example, a newspaperman named Lloyd Lewis had accurately portrayed the Mississippi River in the 19th century as, quote, the spinal column of America. For more than 2,000 miles, the Mississippi River flows silently southward on its way to the Gulf of Mexico, and for much of the first half of the 19th century, it was the single most important economic feature of the United States. Down the mighty Mississippi flowed the commerce, the economic lifeblood of the Old Northwest, what we today think of as the northern states that comprise the Midwest. But in 1861, upon the secession of the southern states from the Union, and in particular Louisiana and Mississippi, the river was closed to traffic coming down from the north, and this was a crushing blow to the psyche of Midwesterners. 
For two long years, the dark cloud that was the closure of the Mississippi hung over the heads of Midwesterners. It was imperative that the Union war effort break the Confederate hold on the Great River and reopen the Mississippi, not just for military reasons, but also because it was important politically for the Lincoln administration, since the continued closure of the river was a source of ongoing restlessness and discontent in the Midwest. Henry Halleck, General-in-Chief of the Union armies, wrote of the campaign to capture Vicksburg, saying, In my opinion, this is the most important operation of the war. To open the Mississippi River will be to us of more advantage than the capture of 40 Richmonds. Well, say what you will about old brains, but he had something there. And Confederate President Jefferson Davis, long a resident of Warren County, of which Vicksburg is the county seat, also understood the Mississippi's strategic significance. The river divided the Confederacy in two, and Davis described the rebel stronghold at Vicksburg as, quote, the nailhead that held the South's two halves together. In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, William Shea and Terence Winchell write, quote, The struggle for the Mississippi River was the longest and most complex campaign or series of campaigns of the Civil War. It was marked by an extraordinary diversity of military operations, including naval engagements, cavalry raids, amphibious landings, pitched battles, and the two longest sieges in American history. When the bitter contest finally reached its climax at Vicksburg and Port Hudson in July 1863, the Confederacy suffered a blow from which it would not, could not recover. The fall of Vicksburg cost the Confederacy an army of almost 30,000 men, many of whom never returned to duty after being exchanged. The capture of Port Hudson produced another 5,000 or so rebel prisoners. This appalling loss of manpower was a blow the Confederacy could not simply shake off. The Confederate military also lost an astounding amount of irreplaceable war equipment during the struggles for Vicksburg and Port Hudson. When the news of the military disasters at Vicksburg and Port Hudson was added to the reports of Robert E. Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, all of which occurred within six days of each other, it was hard to escape the conclusion that the Confederacy had just suffered a devastating series of events. Josiah Gorgas, the highly capable chief of the Confederate Ordnance Bureau, lamented, Yesterday we rode on the pinnacle of success. Today, absolute ruin seems to be our portion. The Confederacy totters to its destruction. In the North, people were still celebrating the federal victory at Gettysburg when word came of the fall of Vicksburg, and the celebration started up again. There were 100 gun salutes in half a dozen cities, and church bells tolled with joy in every town across the land, especially in the Midwest. 
Abraham Lincoln was both relieved and delighted by the news of Vicksburg's fall. A few days later, the president sent an extraordinary letter to Ulysses S. Grant, beginning, My dear general, I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. Lincoln then went on to admit that he had second-guessed and had his doubts about Grant's plans and decisions throughout almost every stage of the campaign. But then, in a remarkable display of humility, Lincoln told Grant, I now wish to make a personal acknowledgement that you were right and I wrong. Lincoln's praise of Grant was certainly deserved. On the Confederate side, there was plenty of blame to go around, with John C. Pemberton standing at the head of that sad line. His inability to develop and execute a clear plan of defense ceded the initiative to Grant, who was only too willing to use it. Pemberton's decision to withdraw into Vicksburg only made sense if there had been an understanding with Joe Johnston on a plan for the city's relief. For his part, Joe Johnston treated Vicksburg like an embarrassing problem that he wished would go away, and his efforts to raise the siege lacked the urgency of conviction. Johnston's sole mission in Mississippi was to move heaven and earth to rescue Pemberton's trapped army, but having convinced himself that nothing could be done to save Vicksburg, he did nothing. But all this might have mattered little without the bold leadership and shrewd risk-taking exercised by Grant. He knew his objective and never lost sight of it. Even when forced by events to improvise, Grant always stayed the course. The two most prominent figures of the campaign, whose very names have become synonymous with triumph and defeat, experienced similarly divergent fates after Vicksburg. Pemberton resigned his general's commission after the humiliation of surrendering Vicksburg and served as a lieutenant colonel of artillery until the war's end. He tried his hand at farming in Virginia afterward, but in this endeavor he also failed. Pemberton quietly lived out the remainder of his life in his native Philadelphia and died in 1881. Vicksburg made Ulysses S. Grant and in so doing gave Abraham Lincoln a general who could lead the federal armies to ultimate victory. Grant engineered spectacular victories at Chattanooga in November 1863, and the following March received promotion to lieutenant general and appointment as general-in-chief of all the Union's armies. At Appomattox Courthouse in April 1865, Grant would receive the surrender of yet another Confederate army. The Vicksburg campaign has long languished in the shadows of the events that took place in the war's eastern theater and of Gettysburg in particular. The campaign, in a way, is a victim of its own length, scope, and complexity. It's much easier for people to understand and appreciate what happened at a three-day battle than to grasp the intricate ins and outs of various operations that lasted over a year. Nevertheless, the Vicksburg campaign's effect on the outcome of the Civil War was profound, 
and we hope in some small way we've helped shine the spotlight on its significance through our presentation of this story arc. We thought we'd let Abraham Lincoln have the last word in our Vicksburg story arc. In August 1863, a month after the steamship Imperial arrived in New Orleans from St. Louis, Lincoln summed up the campaign's achievements in a few words that were loaded with triumph and satisfaction when he declared, The Father of Waters again goes unvexed to the sea. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Voices of the Civil War, Vicksburg, by the editors of Time Life Books. During the Vicksburg story arc, you might have noticed we kind of moved away from using those first-person quotes that we typically use at the beginning of a lot of episodes when we're doing a major campaign or battle, although you can look for a return to that with Gettysburg episodes. Um, But anyway, a lot of quotes we usually use are from this Voices of the Civil War series from Time Life. And so if you missed it during these recent shows, and if you're interested in those first-person accounts, then you can pick up the volume on Vicksburg. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Later today, we'll be releasing the next members episode. Uh, We're still working our way through Grierson's raid with the members of the Strawfoot Brigade, including the newest members, Matthew, Jonathan, Nicholas, Gavin, and Shane, who signed on recently over at Patreon. So a big thank you to them. And we also wanted to thank Steve W. for his donation. Thanks, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll start the Gettysburg story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.